I definitely think that the whole, you know, situation with my church really um, revealed to me how ill-equipped the church is to really um, handle these types of things with care and sensitivity because people really don't know. Um, and you know, things escalate very quickly in that kind of environment where people freak out over this sort of stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, it really, it highlighted that experience, highlighted for me the, you know, ways in which the church really needs to be equipped better to, you know, be able to um, approach issues touching on sexuality with more sensitivity, more care, and more people just being able to treat it as any other topic that might come up in the context of um, a person's walk with Christ. Bridget Eileen is a multiracial gay Christian who has chosen a life of celibacy, but not because that's what the Bible tells her, but because that is what she has chosen because she saw a vision for it in community with another person. And I found our conversation to be so fascinating and beautiful and expansive. I can say that I've never really talked to someone who thinks in the categories that I think Bridget thinks in. I want to encourage you, no matter where you're at on LGBTQ inclusion in the church especially, to listen all the way through to this interview because I think you're going to find uh, Bridget's uh, attitudes and grace and convictions to be very compelling and very helpful. And there will be conversation starters that will lead you closer and closer, I think, to who God is. So enjoy. Hi, Bridget. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I am very good. Uh, and it is just sort of middle of summer here in Minneapolis. And for me, <laughs> that means kids soccer games and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it's really, it's, it's sort of fun to be able to break out of my uh, day job and talk to you. Uh, so, and I just want to say, like, I, I, I was introduced to you via Twitter and I just like you tweeted something that someone else retweeted and I found it to be so interesting that I clicked on your Twitter profile and sort of, I don't know what that's called. I hope it's not Twitter stalking, but I just read a lot of your <laughs> tweets and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I would really like to get to know this person. So I reached out and you graciously responded. Um, and so here we are. So again, thank you. I'm just delighted to get to know you. And so I do, I wanna just dive right in. And um, so how would you like to introduce yourself to the folks that are listening? Uh, well, um, my name is Bridget and I'm a Christian and I'm uh, completing my PhD in sociology. And I am also a lesbian and I'm also celibate. And so that's kind of, the bite-sized version of who I am. And I love it, right? So and I think that's part of why, like, okay, let's talk. Because, I, because again, <laughs> and we're going to get into lots of 
uh, fun stuff about fun. That's a lame word. But anyway, I think interesting stuff about the choices that you're making and have made. But first, uh, talk to us about your spiritual background. Such a Krista Tippett question, but I love it. And I think it's a good one. Yeah. So I was raised primarily in the Reformed Baptist denomination. Um, But I've also attended various different church denominations throughout my life. Um, And while I say that I was raised in the Reformed Baptist denomination, I I don't even know what that is. Can can you just explain Reformed Baptist? I know what Baptists are, but I'm not um, sure that I know what Reformed Baptists are. So Reformed Baptists, well, they believe, you know, in the five points of Calvinism, oh, Tulip. Got it, got it. And um, so Reformed in their theology. Got it. Um, very Calvinist. Um, and it's part of the Baptist kind of tradition. Yeah. Um, and so my church growing up was part of the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, or also known as ARPCA. Um, and so, you you know, in terms of well-known people that are associated with um, that association, there's, you know, names like James White or Al Mohler. Got it. Um, you know, those types of um, people are kind of within the Reformed Baptist realm of things. Um, and um, very similar, I would say, theologically speaking, to a Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest differences being that uh, Reformed Baptist churches don't um, hold to covenant theology, um, and as a result, don't practice infant baptism. Right. Um, probably those are the biggest differences, but very, very similar okay. um, in theology to a PCA church, yep. for example. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of my you know, main sphere when I was growing up in the church. But um, I attended lots of churches from, you know, just a Southern Baptist church to, you know, Assemblies of God to non-denominational. Most recently, um, I had been attending a non-denominational church for a number of years. And so that's kind of been uh, where I've been at right now, but also still within the reformed line of thinking. Um, And so I I guess I I tend to kind of gravitate towards reformed churches. Um, I also was homeschooled. So I grew up in the homeschooled evangelical community, uh, very much involved in that, went to homeschool group every Friday. Mm -hmm. And it was that homeschool group that I, you know, learned the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I uh, also attended a highly conservative college called Patrick Henry College, which was initially founded for homeschoolers. Wow. Um, very um, conservative, very religious college that um, I had a really wonderful experience at. Um, I'm very grateful for my religious background and my spiritual background. Um, I think. You know, the, sometimes, sometimes I think queer people can kind of get a bad rap as, I don't know, having a chip on their shoulder against, you know, their religious upbringing. Um, and I really don't feel that way. I'm mm-hmm. very grateful for how I was raised. I, you know, 
am the person I am today because of the spiritual environment that I was raised in and because of the things that I learned. And, um, I had, you know, really, you know, wonderful experience. Um, there's, you know, things that, you know, now as an adult, I critique, but I critique it more out of love, out of a desire to kind of open people's eyes to things that really could be better. Um, and so, you know, whenever I, you know, speak in kind of a more critical way, it's always, you know, from that place of, hey, this is something that, you know, I love. I love the church. I love um, the people in it. And I want to see it be better. Well, and I think I think that's part of what drew me to you is I could sense that I could sense here's a woman who knows how to critique a system. But I also sense I think I sense the love for the system, too. And so And that's intriguing to me because I think that's not typically the narrative. Like you said, I mean, especially maybe just the narrative of anyone who they they, they break away from their their faith formation as a child and they do something totally different. And so I think I'm intrigued by um, asking you some more questions about why you have stayed. Um, But uh, I do want to ask first, like, when did you realize you were gay? And and then, like, how did you process that over time, in particular in your spiritual community, if you did Mm -hmm. process that in your spiritual community, which you may not have? But how was that? Yeah, so I first started realizing that I had feelings for women in college. Mm -hmm. So I guess I really first started realizing that, oh, maybe I could be gay around the age of 18 or 19 years old. Um, It was one of those things where um, I had for years been confused by the girls around me and the way that they responded to boys and Mm -hmm. didn't understand it and didn't get what all was going on. Um, and as I, you know, was in college and, you know, having, I guess, more relational experiences with people, um, I just started kind of getting just really, I got to a point where I just couldn't take the confusion anymore. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't get what these (laughs) girls see and all of these guys. (laughs) And I, I need someone to explain this to me. Yeah. And so I got on the phone with my mom and I just flat out asked her like, can you just, what, does it mean when someone says that they have a crush on someone else, what are they talking about? What yeah. do they feel like, like what did, cause everybody just always kind of talks in generalities about right. having a crush or being into someone. Nobody ever kind of like actually walks through what this actually feels like. And so my mom was like, Oh, well, you know, it's this and that and the other thing and you feel this way and that way. And I remember getting off the phone and realizing, Oh my gosh, I have felt that way, but I felt that way for girls. Right. And it was very like, in my mind, I didn't register it as being like, oh my gosh, I'm gay. It was just kind of like, huh, what does that mean? (laughs) And just kind of like being like, I don't know what that could mean. Um, And it just, it kind of went from there. Um, Just kind of 
parsing through that and the implications of that. And, you know, at first I thought, you know, okay, I felt this way for girls. It doesn't mean that I can't feel that way for guys. Um, maybe everybody feels this way. Maybe it's not an, you know, abnormal thing. And, you know, just kind of slowly over time realizing that this was a gay experience that I was having. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, you know, it took me a while to kind of come to terms with that. Um, and, you know, really, it really took years. And, um, when I graduated from college, I decided, I told myself that I would never, ever tell anyone that I was attracted to women Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was very much, this is a secret that I will take to my grave. I can Mm -hmm. never tell anyone Mm -hmm. and was very, very set on finding a man and marrying him. And I saw that as kind of my answer. This is what I have to do. This is how I'm going to get around this problem. I just have to find this one guy can be anyone. I just need to find one guy that I can be even, you know, a small bit of being into him and, you know, I'll marry him. And I just got to a point where I realized I couldn't do that. And, uh, you know, through that process of just realizing that, you know, I couldn't make myself like men, um, really kind of brought me to a place of realizing that I needed to come to terms with my sexuality. I needed to accept the fact that this was a real thing, that this wasn't something that I could just, you know, push to the side or, you know, stuff under the bed and forget that it's there. Um, that this is something that is real and that has bearing upon how I'm going to live my life and that I can't just live my life and pretend that it's not there and like, it's not going to impact what my life is going to be like. And so, um, that for me was kind of, you know, a turning point in, in my processing is being willing to kind of, you know, reach under the bed and pull out this thing called my sexuality and acknowledge it for what it is Mm -hmm. and, you know, really start to think through, okay, this is real. This is a thing. And what does this mean for my life? And, you know, what does this mean for how I want to live my life? Yeah, that's so I, I thank you for going through like sort of step by step in that from college and then deciding I'm never telling anyone. And then deciding I'm going to marry a guy and it's just going to, that's just what I, how I'm going to do it to then saying, oh my gosh, I just, that's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, like were, were there, I'm, I'm just curious, like were there friends or other people that, you know, even would ask you like, Hey, I noticed you're not dating any guys or you don't talk about guys. I mean, was there any of that sort of conversation that took place where, where you got scared? Like, uh Oh, people are starting to figure it out or any of that stuff. Well, I had gotten things like that from the time that I was very young. Okay. Like from the time of being like 12 years old, I have memories of, there was one time I was at camp actually, and I was with a group of girls and I'm completely oblivious to things. Um, wasn't really thinking about what I was saying, but they were all talking about this guy that they were into and this, you know, camp counselor that they were into and this other camp counselor that they were into and how cute they were and this boy and that boy. And, uh, then 
one of them turned to me and was like, oh, who, who do you like, Bridget? Who do you have a crush on? Mm-hmm. And uh, me being completely oblivious, just very honestly said, oh, I don't get crushes on boys. And uh, they looked at me aghast. Mm-hmm. And one of them turned to another friend that was in the group and said, what is wrong with her Mm. and uh, I like realized immediately that I had just made some sort of terrible social faux pas (laughs) that I had no idea that I had done Mm -hmm. and so I like quickly like you know thinking on my feet was like oh actually um I was just too shy to admit who I really had a crush on um I really have a crush on that guy right there and I just like pointed to the first guy that I saw yeah and you know that so I I had experienced that for for years you know just situations like that um of people being like why don't why aren't you into guys why don't you like them and like um trying to figure out how to navigate that and so um that you know that was that was a thing and um you know there were moments where um i wound up having kind of conversations that i didn't necessarily want to have with people who were close to me Mm -hmm. who noticed that i wasn't into guys ever Mm -hmm. and kind of started to put two and two together Mm -hmm. and that was kind of my own downfall in staying in the closet because Mm -hmm it got to a point where I couldn't hide in the closet anymore because the people that were close to me started kind of figuring out that something's different here and Bridget's not straight. Right. Okay. So let's, let's go back to, so uh, I think when I interrupted you so rudely, you were about to say sort of when, when you started really to pull it out from underneath the bed and, and you're going to say, you're going to deal with your sexuality Um, so when and how did you decide to come out? So I never really decided to come out. Okay. It kind of just happened. Um, the, the process really began for me in, uh, some experiences that I had in church where I guess not to, I don't want to go into details yeah, yeah. Um, about the whole situation, but people started, I guess, picking up on, you know, things that struck them as being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I started setting off people's gaydar. Um, and, you know, it was very much to my own shock and horror because at the time I was doing everything that I could to present as this very straight woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still very closeted, um, still had never used the word gay ever in my life Mm -hmm. and never intended to ever use the word gay. Um, and you know, was still very much in a place of not really wanting to acknowledge the feelings to myself. And then while all this is going on and I'm trying as hard as possible to stuff it down, I'm setting off people's gaydars in my church (laughs) and, um, and a pastor wanted to know, you know, why are you so close with this girl who I was, you know, very close friends with. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, well, cause we're good friends. Um, but you know, it struck him as a gay thing. Hmm. Um, and he wanted to know, you know, whether or not 
I was, you know, I was gay and whether I had gay feelings for her and things like that. Um, and you know, at the time I was like, no, not at all. What are you talking about? No. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it was something that, you know, I guess he was like now as, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I probably did. Those probably were gay feelings because all of my feelings are gay because I am gay. <laughs> right. So, I love that. you know, my feelings, yeah. you know, for, for any, anything is gay because that's just, that's who I am. Um, uh, but like at the time I'm like, no, it's not gay. It's not gay. It's not gay. Um, but you know, that kind of started a process of, I guess, being found out for, mm. you know, um, having the attractions that I did. And, you know, um, by the time I, um, was at a place to start talking about it more honestly, I confided in a, a friend of mine. Um, and I told her, uh, you know, I, I just want you to know that I'm not gay. I want you to know that I'm not gay. But I have attractions in such a way that if I weren't a Christian, I would be gay. <laughs> that's how you sort of worked it out. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. that's how yeah. I said it to her. Uh -huh. um, and she went straight to the pastor and reported to him that I was gay. Oh, okay. um, and so that was kind of my... Uh, outing, I guess. Mm. And it kind of just, it went downhill from there. And, mm. um, you know, it was very difficult for me and, you yeah. know, an emotional experience for me. Yeah. Um, and you know, other people too, at the time were picking up that there was something not straight about Bridget and were, you know, kind of confronting me on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I never actually willfully came, I never actually woefully came out. Um, other people kind of pulled me out as a yeah. result of picking up on things in my life. So, yeah. um, it was definitely an, uh, a roller coaster of a ride. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, thank you for telling me that, that, I mean, that's very vulnerable. As you look back on that, what are, I mean, you've, you've shared some of your, in retrospect, you know, sort of how you explore, how you were working it out in real time. It seems like, you know, like, um, I have these attractions, but I'm not gay, but maybe, oh my gosh, what, like, how do you look back on that? Like, are you, do you feel betrayed? Do you feel, um, I don't know what the question I'm trying to ask is, was that a good thing that people pulled it out of you? Was that a hurtful thing? Was it both? Was it, how do you, how do you yeah. think about that? I think I, I see God's hand in it. Um, I, I honestly don't think that I ever would have come out on my own if people hadn't kind of pulled it out of me. Yeah. Just because I am that, I'm just that kind of person. I'm a people pleaser. I don't like to disappoint people. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very scared of rocking the boat. And, you know, I don't like to do that. Yeah. And so I can see myself very happily staying in the closet uh, for a long time if people had not pulled me out of the closet, yeah. uh, really against my will. And so I see God's hand in it. Um, I definitely think that the whole 
you know, situation with my church really, um, revealed to me how ill-equipped the church is to really, um, handle these types of things with care and sensitivity right? because people really don't know and they freak out over it. And I think that's really what happened with my friend is she freaked out and was like, Oh my gosh, I have to tell the pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, things escalate very quickly in that kind of environment where people freak out over this sort of stuff. Right. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, it really, it highlighted that experience highlighted for me the, you know, ways in which the church really needs to be equipped better to, you know, be able to, um, approach issues touching on sexuality with more sensitivity, more care, less, um, less people, fewer people freaking out over it and more people just being able to treat it as any other topic that might come up in the context of, um, a person's walk with Christ. Right. Thank you for saying it that way. I 100% agree. And I also think that like you sort of highlight in your own story and the vulnerability with which you shared it, like you were just right in the middle of it. You, uh, like mm-hmm. you didn't, you, um, yes, you said there was, you were in the closet, but there was also, you hadn't worked it out yourself yet. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't like you were truly hiding anything. And so for someone to drag it out, I mean, I feel, I think as a pastor, I mean, I would feel like, ouch, no, people don't mm-hmm. do that. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so I agree with you that that we need much more sensitivity, grace, um, and just humanity. You know, let's not let's yeah. just let's so. Um, well, maybe we'll thank you. So thank you for that. And we might circle around to that. But I think I think what I want to ask you next, and I'm going to circle back to an earlier question that I wrote down. But um, you've you've chosen to be celibate, and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, this is my understanding of of what I uh, have have understood from you, just mm-hmm. from what you've tweeted and stuff. But you've chosen to be celibate not because you believe the Bible tells you to, but because of your own process that has led you to come to that conviction. And I think mm-hmm. I would love to hear you say more about that. I love that. Yeah. So. Um, I do, uh, believe and am convicted of the traditional interpretation of biblical marriage. Um, I do believe that marriage, um, is, uh, in the Bible interpreted to be between a man and a woman. Um, that's a conviction that I personally just can't escape. Um, I respect those who come to different conclusions in their reading of scripture. Um, and I believe that they are just as good at this whole Christian thing as I am. Um, I don't think that either of us are better Christians because of our conclusions on what the Bible says about sexuality. Um, for me, I, just can't shake my own convictions. Um, it's just, it's not something that I can personally shake. And so, um, at the end of the day, I have to be honest about those convictions before God, but that's not the reason why I'm celibate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting human phenomenon because just because you're convicted a certain way, doesn't mean you're going to, live in ways that people view as conforming to that conviction. Right. Uh, for me, 
for the longest time, I didn't see any viable way for me to live a celibate life. And so it really didn't matter how convicted I was about traditional marriage. Um, being celibate just wasn't an option for me because I didn't see how it could even be livable, even be possible. Uh, the only options I saw were to either get married to a man and be absolutely miserable for the rest of my life, mm -hmm. but at least my conscience would be clear. So, hey, you know, yeah. at least I have that. Or on the other hand, get married to a woman and have my conscience riddled with unbearable guilt for the rest of my life, but at least I'd be with someone I love. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the two options that I saw. Celibacy wasn't an option for me because celibacy meant unbearable loneliness. I, I couldn't live that way. Um, yeah. And no one can live that way. Um, people aren't meant to be alone. Um, and so it really didn't matter to me how convicted I was about what the Bible said. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really didn't see celibacy as an option. It wasn't. Um, and that really left me um, in a place where I felt like I either had to choose to um, marry a man and stay a Christian or marry a woman and forsake my faith. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really, it really was an, an awful place for me to be in, um, because uh, I didn't know what to do with that kind of option. Um, but that's, that's where I was. And, um, for, for me, uh, um, the, the, po those two possibilities, honestly, I tried the a whole, you know, marry a guy thing. And like, you know, I tried to be into guys. I tried to make it happen and it just didn't work for me. So, um, you know, I can very well see myself having, you know, been like, sure, this just, this isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, and, and marrying a woman, um, because really those were the two only viable options that I saw. Um, it really was only when I saw a vision that was desirable in the celibate vocation that I started to actually want to be celibate. Um, I chose celibacy because I actually wanted it, yeah. um, because it was desirable for me, no matter how convicted I was regarding sexual ethics, I would have never in a million years chosen to be celibate if I hadn't discovered a way to be celibate and to be happy. Um, and I, I discovered um, a vision for celibacy that um, was done in relationship with another person. Celibacy is feasible for me because I'm living my life in relationship with another person who is also called a celibacy herself. Um, I didn't choose celibacy in isolation. And I think that's really important because celibacy is so often uh, seen as this lonely endeavor, this thing that you choose on your own as a single. Um, I kind of just discovered it in relationship with someone else. And before I knew it, I was just in this way of life that was so life-giving and so wonderful and so beautiful. Um, and God had kind of, I guess, resolved the, the dilemma that I faced by just kind of gifting me with a life that um, was wonderful in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I chose celibacy in relationship with another person, and that has honestly made all the difference for me um, in that, you know, God led me to a person 
um, and God led me into a life and then brought celibacy along with that. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't a matter of me, you know, having these convictions and I'm going to just live my life this way and I'm just going to white knuckle it. And this is how I'm going to live. Um, you know, for me, I really experienced it as a crisis because I didn't, you know, see, um, any way that I could live that didn't either compromise my faith or compromise my life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I chose, I chose celibacy, um, because it really looked beautiful to me. Um, and I really actually wanted that life. Um, and I found myself in that life and Mm -hmm. I wanted to keep it. I wanted to hold on to it because it was so, it was so good. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I wound up in that place. Well, thank you so much. I just love that whole run you went on, honestly, about like the process and that it started with you, your own personal convictions about how you see the Bible, but also so much grace for people who would disagree with you and come to a different opinion about the Bible. There's no, you know, hierarchy, hi, hierarchy. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no hierarchy of better Christian or worse Christian as it relates to whether you're celibate or not. I loved how you did that. That was so graceful. But I also really, or, and I also really, I really love how you said, I, my convictions weren't going to be enough. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to see a vision for a future that I could really want. And I think no matter that, that just strikes me as so true. Like no matter what, no matter what you believe, no matter what your doctrine is, no matter what, that conviction only takes you so far and you can be, you can have all the conviction in the world to live a certain way, but if it doesn't flow out, I'm just repeat, I'm just flowing and repeating what you said because it was so beautiful. But if you don't have a picture of a life that you want, it just seems like it's going to turn into a kind of Pharisaical. And I don't mean to be pejorative against Pharisees in the Bible. Some were wonderful, I'm sure, but sort of a <laughs> self-righteous, you know, like a, like a self-righteous, mm-hmm. I'm better because I do it this way. Because I, yeah. I don't do the things I shouldn't do, and I do do the things I should do, versus, no, actually, I believe God wants me to have a beautiful life. And, mm-hmm. um, and it sounds like you found one. Yeah. You know, that's beautiful. It's just so, so – but anyway, thank you for being so articulate about the process and about what yeah. wasn't going to work. I tried this. No, I tried this. No. And it even mm-hmm. sounds like there was three options really in, in the, the like uh, celibacy via conviction, marrying yeah. a guy, marrying a woman. None of those really were going to work mm-hmm. for you. And so you sort of kept in and then, and then you sort of found yourself in mm-hmm. a relationship with someone. Is, did, did I hear that right? And then you sort of saw yeah. it differently. Uh, but yeah, so I think the, the other thing for me that was really key is that I found myself pursuing celibacy um, in relationship with Jesus Christ, um, not in this kind of like, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I you know believe that I can't have sex with women, so like I can't do this. So I'm just going to be celibate, and I'm just going to have to deal with it. And this is just my cross to bear. Um, you know, it wasn't that way for me. It was, um, you know, I am in relationship with Jesus, and I'm letting Him lead me in 
life, wherever that might be. Um, and, you know, I had a very open conversation with Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, if you lead me to marry a woman, then I will follow you there. Hmm. Um, if you lead me to marry a man, then I will follow you there too. I am following you. I'm not following a sexual ethic. And uh, that gave me a lot of freedom to uh, kind of unpack a lot of these things um, with Jesus being my leader rather than clinging to these things um, in order to impress Jesus, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and that, that made all the difference in um, coming to a place where um, I found myself uh, living a celibate life and very happy um, and having a great amount of peace um, and, and relational fullness, both spiritually in my walk with the Lord, but also socially just in the here and now and in my present physical life. So, yeah. You know, I, I just have to say it. I feel like I've talked to many gay Christians, honestly, many, 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 and I've never heard anyone say what you just said. And it's beautiful to me is that, um, I'm following you, Jesus. That, that means marrying a woman. I will follow you there. Marry a man of like, there, there's such an elegance. That's the wrong word. Um, I don't know what the right word. It's not courage. It's not elegance, but it, it is, um, it is beautiful. Um, to me to hear that because it that sounds right to me like versus the bible can be an idol can't it mm -hmm. i mean we can treat yeah. that we can treat the bible we can we can make the bible say whatever we want it to say let's be yeah. honest no all mm -hmm. of us can all of us can no matter what side mm -hmm. you end up on anything so to yeah. say i'm following jesus and I have a relationship with jesus christ is very like it moves me actually um in a way that I'm sort of surprised by. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so thank you for that. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, Bridget, a few more questions if you have time. Do you have time? I do have time. Go right ahead. Okay. So um, how do people react? Because I don't think we've even talked. We haven't even touched on this yet. But how, how do people react or do they, you know, when they sort of understand you're multiracial and gay, and Christian, <laughs> like do people's mm -hmm. minds blow or is that like, nah, that's fine. Like we're cool. Well, I think people's minds tend to blow most around the gay Christian thing. Right. Um, that's kind of the thing that people's minds blow the most on. Um, and then people's minds blow more, um, not so much over the fact that I'm multiracial, but you know, when I start, talking about racism and systemic right. injustice. And right. then they're like, Oh my gosh, you're that kind of multiracial person. Like, wait a minute, hold right. on. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the, when it comes to the liberal conservative divide, mm -hmm. that's often, um, where I experience the, the most extreme reactions by people. Um, and that's because the liberal conservative extremes, they don't really work for me. Um, yes. I'm not liberal and yes. I'm not conservative, but yes. when I talk about my experiences as a mixed person or as a lesbian, people want to pin me for an evil liberal. Yes. And then on the other hand, when I talk about my experiences with faith, with religion and belief, people want to pin me for a self-hating conservative. Uh -huh. And so, uh, you know, and that's just them 
reacting from their own extreme position and trying to kind of quantify where I exist on this kind of false, you know, binary mm-hmm. of, of, you know, where people fall that, you know, I just don't find really works for me at all. Um, and so that's typically where I find the most extreme reactions is along that kind of liberal conservative divide. Yes. I love how you answered that. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so, this conversation is so delightful for me because you are just (laughs) nailing it, but there's a, um, so years ago I was listening to a podcast and from this ecologist and she was talking about this phenomenon called an ecotone. Have you, have you ever heard of this phenomenon ecotone? I don't know if I have. Okay. So it's, it's what you're describing essentially, but there are areas in ecology where two ecological communities meet like a forest and a meadow or like the shore and the beach, you know, like two different, but at the place that they meet, there's this overlap, right? Mm. And the overlap is what people call the ecotone. And so geologists and people that study the earth have understood that unique place. It's, it's neither just the meadow nor just the forest. It's somehow both. Um, Mm. but certain kinds of life can only grow in the ecotone. And oh, wow. yeah, it's really fascinating. And even what it's called the eco. So eco is sort of ecology. It's where we get our sort of study of the earth, but tonos or tone comes from tension, right? So it's like mm. holding tension of both without, mm. you know, sliding on to one end or the other. And so that's what I hear you talking about when I hear you say, I'm not conservative. I'm not progressive or liberal, progressive, conservative, liberal, whatever. I'm something (laughs) else. And um, I think in terms of conversation, it must drive people crazy when they try to pin you down and talk to you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, other people must go like, oh, my gosh, I've never talk to someone so expansive and spacious, right? I mean, do you get both of those reactions? I hope you do. I hope you don't just get the freak out. Yeah, I I definitely get a whole mix. You know, I get the people that, you know, just want to try to pin me down and get, mm-hmm. you know, progressively and progressively more frustrated because they can't pin me down. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I get more people who are just kind of, I think, relieved to find someone else who is in that same place as they are. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that are in that eco tone. Yeah kind of existence that, you know, they are, you know, they're existing in a space that isn't one and it's not the other. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's this other thing entirely that's somehow both. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that find themselves there and that are, you know, very frustrated by the way, um, socio-political discourse wants to bifurcate things and polarize things because that doesn't really um, mix well with healthy dialogue and with people being able to, you know, really develop um, healthy mindsets for the way they think about the world and the way they think about other people and, and themselves. Um, and so, you know, I find a lot of people just kind of really resonate a lot of times with where I am because mm-hmm. that's where they are too. Yes. Well, uh, yes. I mean, and, and perhaps that's, that's why I'm freaking out in a good way hearing you talk. So, um, that's a, that's a Minnesota thing to say, by the way, like freaking out in a good way, but that, that phrase <laughs> in a good way that that's such a unforgivably Minnesotan thing. Well, um, 
I want to ask you a follow-up question to that, um, that being uh, that you're multiracial and gay and Christian. So I, I just have heard many evangelical Christians pit the queer community against people of color, and they say that the fight for LGBTQ inclusion is essentially a white, even white liberal conversation. And, and I'm just interested in what you have to say about that, if you have anything to say about that. Well, I, I think that when it comes to this discussion, um, it is important to acknowledge that it is a problem in many LGBTQ communities, just generally speaking, not in every single one, not in all, but in general, for these conversations to often be dominated by white people. Right. And people of color often feel like they need to carve out their own spaces as a result. Um, mm -hmm. When someone thinks, for example, of a gay man, most people think of a white man. Mm -hmm. When you think of a lesbian, most people think of a white woman. It's mm -hmm. just people are trained to do that. But, you know, it's not just a problem in LGBTQ communities. It's a problem in almost, you know, any community that um, is, you know, having conversations and dialogue there, you know, unless it's specifically on the topic of race. Um, race tends to get forgotten about and the ways in which race interacts with this conversation tends to get forgotten about. Um, and so when, when you think about racism, especially with marginalized communities, I think that there's, there's a lot to be learned from just looking at history and how racism has functioned in history. So, um, back in, uh, the 1800s, racism functioned to divide the poor whites from the poor blacks. And wealthy landowners used racism as a tool to keep the poor people from uniting because they, they knew that if the poor white people united with the poor black people, then they collectively would have a voice too strong to, uh, um, to, to, you know, really hold up against. And so, you know, racism was a really effective tool to divide them. Um, even, you know, after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period, um, you know, it was especially useful because now the blacks are free. Yeah. And the whites, you know, well, you know, the, what's, what's to differentiate a poor white from a poor black? Um, it was very, very useful for, you know, white wealthy landowners to inject racism into that, to, to keep um, poor communities from uniting um, and to keep them divided yeah. um, because a, a poor white person, you know, could, you know, say, well, at least I'm not black. Um, at least I'm not like them. Um, at least I'm white. And so see themselves as more united to, you know, these white wealthy landowners that, you know, really were oppressing them. Um, and so that's racism has always functioned like that. It's always functioned to divide marginalized communities. Um, so, you know, it divides poor communities by keeping, um, you know, the whites and the blacks and the Hispanics from uniting against each other because they're too busy fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, or I'm sorry, they're from uniting with each other because they're too busy fighting against each other. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's how racism has always functioned mm -hmm. in our country. Um, and, you know, it can function that way. Um, very similarly in LGBTQ communities where um, you have, you know, these white queer people who are, you know, unbelievably marginalized in mainstream society. 
And their whiteness is their one thing that they can hold on to Hmm. that gives them uh, an in, so to speak, with um, with the, you know, with the with the influencers and, you know, with, um, I guess, the the communities that have power in our in our social spheres. Um, And so, you know, you have you know, within the LGBTQ community, um, that same kind of divisive tool, um, in racism where it can, you know, be very insidious and keep the LGBTQ community from uniting because, um, you know, racism injects itself and we become too busy, um, fighting, against each other rather than, you know, really seeing all the commonalities that we have, um, and, and uniting together as one voice. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, for, you know, white people in the LGBTQ community, it is very important to recognize the ways in which they, they might be using their whiteness, um, as a way to hold on to power, as a way to hold on to privilege. Um, to the expense of people of color in their community, because it's very common. It goes on all the time. Um, but oftentimes white people in queer communities are unaware that they're doing it mm. um, and, you know, aren't even really doing it intentionally, but it's going on. And so, you know, it's it's something that that I think requires white people to acknowledge um, and be aware of um, and a willingness to, you know, allow people to call them out for it, um, you know, not in a spirit of, you know, wanting to put them down, but in a spirit of like, hey, like, you know, this is something that is not okay. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't let this get in the way of us being united as a community. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I do think that it's something to just be aware of and, and to fight against. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. And, and I think on one level, it makes so much sense that you would just call that out. You know, you have to call whiteness out wherever whiteness mm-hmm. is. You know? So of course, it's, uh, it's, it's within the LGBTQ community as well. So, um, okay, so maybe one more question, but I think it might stretch to two. Um, but let's, so put your, you know, PhD sociological hat on, as well as your theological hat. Can a, can a, can a church, can a, can a mostly white church that maybe has, that is being led by Jesus into both LGBTQ inclusion and a kind of multi-ethnicity, um, can that church walk that road or is that just impossible? Uh, I... 100% believe that a church can walk that road. 100%. Um, I think that it's a challenging one if you've started down the road already, having not established those things as priorities, right. and right. now you're trying to backtrack and make them priorities. Right. Um, it's it's way harder to deconstruct something that is unhealthy than it is to just construct something from the get-go that is what you are desiring it to be. Um, but yeah, I would say 100% it's mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, that is part of the vision of, you know, the church that, you know, is given to us in scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you could say, you know, there's even, you know, rather 
you know, queer sort of line where it says there is neither slave nor free. Mm-hmm. There is neither male nor female. Mm-hmm. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, you know, in the Bible paints a very unified picture of the church that um, is united across lines of um, gender is united across lines of race. Um, and I would argue that, you know, sexuality is also part of that, For that sure. picture. Um, and so I think that's the, the vision that the Bible gives us. And, um, that is the vision that we have to pursue and it's mm-hmm. 100% possible, mm-hmm. um, when the spirit is in it. Yeah. Well, and I would add, you know, to those things that you already mentioned in the new Testament anyway, I, I would add culture and mm-hmm. religion even, you know, cause we're talking about, uh, folks that really were Jewish and were following Jesus, but I think weren't seeing, they weren't changing religions. They were just, they were following Jesus within Judaism. Then other folks who mm-hmm. were, of course, um, non, non-Jewish, there were Gentiles, there were Greeks there, you know, that were starting to follow mm-hmm. Jesus. And so like the early church, definitely multicultural, definitely multi-religious. Um, and I think the ethic of sex- sexuality is something that we're, that we're probably going to learn more about in the next mm-hmm. even 20 years in terms of, yeah. you know, theological interpretation. And as our, as our study gets better and better in terms of human consciousness as we evolve and, you know, so, yeah. um, but, but I think we need to see it just like you just said it. Like we need to see that original picture as the answer to my question, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe yeah. It already has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe there's a way back. Um, so, okay, uh, Bridget, oh my goodness, I have taken up so much of your time and you've been so gracious and great. Is there anything sort of you wish I would have asked you that I didn't or anything else you want to just throw into the soup here? Um, you know, there's, there's nothing that's coming to mind. This has been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you and, um, yeah, it's just, it's really been awesome just to kind of talk things out and just to kind of have a, a chat with you. And I've had a good time. Good. I'm glad. Well, you're very articulate. Um, and, and thank you for that. Cause I think it, it, I, I wish for more of these kinds of conversations that are expansive, um, yeah. and that's, uh, that are surprising, you know? And so <laughs> I hope that this conversation helps people talk to each other. Honestly, that's, that's what I hope it does because I think yeah. you have created some categories that maybe people didn't have before. Mm. Not necessarily, you didn't necessarily create them, but maybe for some people you create mm-hmm. some categories and stuff. So, um, yeah. well, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. I will email you that link on the ecotone stuff. Cause I think, I, I just think you'll love that. Um, yeah, so. I would love to check that out. So please do. Cause I will definitely read it. And then if people wanted to follow you, you know, what's the sort of, I know Twitter, I mean, I can put that on the show notes, but is, are there any other ways that you would point people toward looking at your work or following you? Um, so yeah, definitely Twitter. And then I've got, uh, my blog at meditations of a traveling Yes. I've read a couple and of posts. They're great. Yeah. So I've got more, I guess, in-depth thoughts published on there, um, as well as a free ebook that kind of highlights what I would consider to be my most important, um, thoughts. Um, 
uh, free to download on my blog as well. And so if people wanted to check out my blog, it's meditationsofatravelingnun.com. Okay. So, um, folks visit the show notes, steveweens.com slash show notes, and you can see links to follow Bridget on Twitter and, uh, you can get on her blog and it's really, it's really well-written. Uh, no surprise there after hearing her, uh, but meditations of traveling nun.com. And then, uh, if they sign up to like subscribe to your email list, they get your ebook or is there another link for that? Yeah, there's, um, there, when, when you subscribe, there will be, um, you'll be able to get the link sent to you. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank you. I just loved it. And, uh, you're great. And I really appreciated this conversation as well. I can't wait for people to hear it. So, well, thank you. Okay, friends, thanks for listening and, uh, make sure to check out the show notes to get, uh, more on Bridget. Peace. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this good word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.